Welcome to the Styano Plastic Surgery Podcast with plastic surgeon JJ Styano, the only plastic surgeon in the UK who owns a clinic specializing in breast and body contouring. If it, uh, well, I think it's not been asked again. Anyway, I hope the audio is okay because I've got audio on the camera. So I hope that's okay. And I hope this is no, working all right. Important to me. So, this is Facebook Live, seven o'clock. So what we've got here is a question. Upper body flesh after tummy tuck. Please can you give me more information regarding tummy tuck? I had one six and a half years ago and still left with a lot of upper body flesh. I feel I may be I should have a FDL, which is a flurly. Um, so, this is a patient who has uh, had a tummy tuck and has got some. Well, six and a half years ago, so we a long time ago. We just click print. A long time ago. No, I need to get this done. So. No, I'm just printing off and then off. Okay, carry on. Carry on, guys. Hey, guys. Sorry to interrupt. Hope you're enjoying this. It's really good. Love you. So once you've had a tummy tuck, the, one of the things I say to people is it doesn't um, protect you from the future. And this is six and a half years ago. And so if things happen, oh my God, exactly. and the reason you need a tummy tuck in the first place is that oh God, you, you really so um, have thank excess you. skin because the skin has been stretched. And... Um, that's usually due to pregnancy okay, or, bye guys. Have say. Losing Love you. or uh, gaining and losing Thanks weight. Thanks for giving my dad money. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Bye. Oh my lord. No one was watching that. Oh god. I'll tell you what, children disrespectful what you're supposed to do. I don't know whether I'm supposed to discipline them more or disrespectful. I don't know. Anyway, sorry about that. Anyway, that's fine. So yeah. Um, one of the big things about tummy tuck or any sort of body contouring surgery, it sets you back to a better place. It doesn't protect you from the future. So over time, if you put on weight and lose weight, uh, or if you have more children, then you can be left with more um, loose skin, which I think is what's happened here. Well, I don't know if it actually, or unless it was always like that. Uh, it says, please can you give me more info regarding tummy tuck? I had one six and a half years ago and still left with a lot of upper abdominal, upper body flesh. I might, I feel maybe I should if had an FDL, should have had an FDL. So I'm assuming uh, if this has come on over the six and a half years, it might have always been like this, um, which is a slightly, yeah, sorry, thank you, which is a slightly different question. So um, so if you do things and you can get redundant tissue there. Now, um, 
the question is should she should this patient have had a fleurly uh, tummy tuck the um fleurly tummy tuck is really good at uh, narrowing the uh, abdominal contour and giving a better waist because a fleurly tummy tuck is an inverted t-shaped scar so it's, it's the normal tummy tuck scar which is in the sort of um, lower abdomen but then there's a vertical scar as well that goes straight down the middle uh, it's quite obvious that vertical scar and um, yeah it's quite obvious that vertical scar and uh, so it is not something that you take on lightly but um, it does give a very good waste um, so it, it's, it's very good at uh, narrowing the tissue in a, in a vertical direction. This patient is saying she's got a lot of upper abdominal body flesh, which sounds like here, sort of underneath the breast, which is uh, in the upper abdomen. And the tummy tuck doesn't directly address that. Um, normally, if people have that, if it's real, if there's a real, uh, a, a lot of that upper abdominal uh, fullness, you might suggest they might need something later on. But often, that upper abdominal um, excess is pulled down when you do a tummy tuck. Now the main uh, focus of a tummy tuck is the excess below the belly button because by and large someone who has got excess skin on their tummy it is below the belly button it's the lower abdomen which is worse than the upper abdomen uh, pretty much always it's always the bit in the lower abdomen even if they've got excess skin and uh, fat underneath their breast they'll have more in the lower abdomen and a tummy tuck is really addressing the um, tissue in the lower abdomen. Uh, it doesn't directly address the tissue in the upper abdomen. So um, in order to address the tissue in the upper abdomen, as I say, the first thing I would say is look, have a tummy tuck and see because it might indirectly pull it and tighten it and it usually does the trick. If it doesn't, then you might need more surgery and really um, this is probably one of the, one of the difficulties with uh, um, surgery in general, but this sort of surgery is talking to people before they have the surgery about what sort of expectations they can realistically uh, hope to achieve in order that you don't get someone who's unhappy afterwards who says i heard tummy tuck and all this you've left it all up here and you're like well that was never going to all go away um or i hoped it was going to go away and it didn't you know it's it you can't always predictably um predict Predictively predict, you can't always predict how um, things are going to settle. So, if you are left with fullness up there, I probably wouldn't have thought a fleur de lis would be the way to go. I would have thought number one, liposuction. Uh, that's the first thing I would try some liposuction to, take, to remove this uh, fat. As I always say with liposuction, it doesn't remove the skin. Uh, so you rely on the skin to recoil. So you're hoping if there's not that much excess skin and it's just fat, then uh, you'd hope the skin would recoil. If there is a lot of excess skin, particularly if you've got massive weight loss, then you would look at cutting that skin out, which is a reverse tummy tuck. I think we spoke about this last week. So rooftop incision goes underneath your breast in the same place as a breast reduction scar, joins in the middle, um, and it's a reverse abdominoplasty. Uh, but by and large, you pretty much always had a full abdominoplasty first. So it's actually not an unreasonable way to go to a full abdominoplasty and if there's still fullness there to have a reverse abdominoplasty. So I don't think your surgeon, well, I haven't seen you and I haven't seen what the, the, the problem is, but I don't necessarily think the surgeon is well not doing a fleur de although, you know, maybe that, that should have, um, that this sort of thing should have been discussed before having the surgery, but maybe it's a reverse tummy tuck that now might be needed. Um, so that is um, that is something that you can think about. And Gemma, 
Who is very supportive? Uh, yes, Jordan. Um, it is hard being a parent. How much different in price is it? Uh, what, what, Gemma? Is that for a fleur de lis versus a full? Um, I don't know. But a fleur de lis will be more because it's more surgery, more complications, more risks. Because there's a T. It's weird, isn't it? More complications. So you could think, what? I'm paying more to have more complications. But I think uh, the way the sort of hostel look at it is that you're more likely to need dressings because there's a T shape, there's a T scar, you know, where one scar meets the other. Um, so there's more risk of the wound breaking down, and and so the hostel there's more potential costs, more dressings, and what have you. So it's a bigger offer, fluidly. So it will be more. I don't even know what the prices are. I don't even know what the price. Um, it will be a, a few thousand pounds more for a, a fleur de lis, I would have thought, um, but I don't really know. Sorry, but if you if you text or if you um, not text, we can text or message us. We could, and I emailed a few days ago. Oh, Gemma, did you? Don't tell me this, Gemma. Are you saying we haven't replied? Right. Okay, Gemma. I. Oh, it's awkward, isn't it? I will look at this when I finished here and I will respond to you Gemma about is it fleur, fleur, tell me about some fleur de lis and things but fleur de lis isn't that common really um, because it is oh I did reply oh few, few. oh good um, so um, yeah Fleurdely is not that common because it is a big scar down the middle. So a lot of people say, I can't show my tummy in public. But when they have a fleurdely, you might say, I can't show my tummy in public because I've got a big scar. Looks like you've had a sort of laparotomy. Looks like you've had a surgical, um, uh, you've had, you know, uh, probably your stomach or your bowel or something. Um, <clears throat> so um, uh, do you do lipo the same time as a tummy tuck? Yes, you do. Yes, I do. Yes, we do. Yes, yes. Very common to combine liposuction with a tummy tuck. Um, the main areas that you combine liposuction with a tummy tuck are the, are the sides, the hips and the flanks, the sides. When you look at a tummy tuck, if you try and think of it from our point of view, try and think of it when you're doing the surgery, when you cut from hip to hip and you really try and pull that tissue down and contour that, that, that uh, tissue, but you're really contouring it centrally. It's hard to get hips and the flanks, the love handles, you know, the bit on the sides. It's, you can't really get to those bits when you're doing a tummy tuck. Um, you could if you went all the way around. And to be honest with you, that's one of the really good benefits of a belt lipectomy or a circumferential tummy tuck where you go all the way around. So you do a tummy tuck, but you carry it around, all the way around the back. And it's not so much for taking the fullness off the back because you don't take a huge amount off the back, but it's really at the sides you can take really big, you know, you can carry on that excision and take really big areas off the sides uh, when you do a circumferential um tummy tuck how do we get onto this oh yeah lipo but um not again not many people are candidates for a circumferential tummy tuck because that's a quite a, that's a massive operation really um so when you're doing a tummy tuck you can't really get to those love handles so either you accept that and if your love handle area is not too bad then that might be fine also weight loss can help those areas sometimes sometimes not but uh weight loss can sometimes help those areas or you can combine a tummy tuck with liposuction when you do liposuction you can get to those hips those uh, uh, flanks and you can do liposuction to help contour the uh, abdomen um, um, a bit better um, so if you have fullness on the sides that's the, the common area where we do liposuction 
a lot of people will talk about doing liposuction to these big bits we're just talking about now i'm saying if you've got fullness in your upper if your upper abdomen underneath your breasts people say oh why don't you have a liposuction there we tend not to do liposuction there at the time of a tummy tuck because the blood supply from the tummy tuck is coming in um from that area so you don't really you see that so you don't really want to liposuck that area um because you don't want to interrupt the blood supply because again you'll get problem potential problems with delayed wound healing so we tend not to liposuck the upper abdomen when we're doing a tummy tuck but we do uh, liposuck the sides the hips the flanks um when we're doing a tummy tuck now uh, you can have liposuction to other areas of course um but when you, one thing you think about again i say think about it from our point of view you don't have to think about it from our point of view but just to just to explain sometimes people say oh what about this bit on my back or something like that. when you're under a general anesthetic when you're doing a tummy tuck you can't get around to the back so you'd have to turn the patient in order to do liposuction to the back to the folds at the back and things like that so that is a big deal turning patients during surgery is a big deal and it adds a lot of complexity to it it adds a lot of time to the theater um so it is quite a big deal um sometimes when they, or while i'm under will you do a bit of liposuction to my back but you, it's actually quite a big deal if you can't get to that area while you're lying on the table because moving a person or turning a patient person while they're asleep is quite a big deal i mean we can do it obviously but it does add perhaps more complexity to the surgery that you might than you might think because you might think oh just a little bit of like on my back so um that's something to think about evening zoe nice to see you here um listen guys i've got four questions here i'm a bit worried i'm trying to drag them out because i've got and you know what i think the third question i don't think i know i look back i, I put the questions on and I thought, I've seen that question before. And then after the question's on, I'll look back and a couple of weeks ago, I answered it. So I don't know if the guys in the office are just thinking, oh, I'll put in an old question because he hasn't got many. I don't know. But anyway. Um, you shouldn't have said that live. There you go. Um, can you remove a flat mole with radio frequency technology? Sounds posh, doesn't it? Radio frequency. Radio frequency is a way of delivering energy. And it's funny you should ask that because we were trialing a machine um, last week on Thursday, uh, a radio frequency machine, uh, one of those fat removing machines um, that you don't have to have surgery for. You put the sort of pads on and it delivers energy, in this case, radio frequency energy uh, to the tissues. And because the fat is more susceptible to the heating energy uh, than the skin, the fat cells are um destroyed and die and it gets rid of the fat the basically the two ways of doing that are heating and cooling um those are the two sort of common ways um of doing it uh, we're looking at cooling on thursday so um there's different so yeah so basically radio frequency is a way of delivering energy and it's used in lots of different things we use it in surgery and uh, it it heats and destroys tissues um and this patient is asking can you remove moles yes you can remove moles with radio frequency it's a bit like laser laser sort of delivers energy to, to the tissues at least the, the sort of laser you do for moles um would be an ablative laser so it destroys the the tissues and moles are areas of pigment in the skin in the thickness of the skin and you have to destroy that and so in order to get rid of a mole you have to destroy it some way you can pit off you can cut it out with a knife um you can destroy it with a 
low with radio frequency. There's lots of different ways you can destroy it, but they're all destroying it. It's certainly a way of doing it. The problem with radio frequency and laser is that you know, they're sort of burning the mole and you don't, um, you can't send it off histology. So that is a problem for pigmented lesions, brown lesions. We do like to send them for histology where they look at under a microscope to check it's not a cancer. Um, even if you're sure it's not a cancer, it is often nice to send it off to have a look just to be 100%. And so that is something you can't do if you are doing um, an ablative laser or a radio frequency because you're sort of burning it. Um, the, the laser and the, these sort of things come in really with lots of multiple moles where you wouldn't have, have lots of um, excisions or, or what have you. Um, so where perhaps you wouldn't send them all for histology, maybe you send a representative sample to histology, so maybe cut some out and then laser or radio frequency the rest. Um, the A lot of people say, oh, they don't leave scar, radio frequency or laser or this doesn't leave scar. It's going to leave a mark. I mean, call it what you will. It will leave a scar. Anytime you're removing that depth of skin, if you're not going very superficial, you're moving that depth, it's going to leave a mark. Now, often these are things on the face, and often the face scars well. So you can, it's off, it can be hard to see a scar on the face. And that's where you cut it, you laser it, you radio frequency it, or you whatever it. Um, and so, you know, it does leave a mark, whatever technique you use. So, um, but yeah, radio frequency certainly is a technique, although, as I say, the only thing to think about is the fact that you can't send it for histology. We don't do it at the clinic, we don't do radio frequency mole removal, we just use a knife. So, um, I would always say talk to someone who does it to talk the pros and cons to get a balanced view on it. Um, so, um, but yeah, that's what we are now. This is the one. Do you recognize this? Hmm? I do. Um, I recognize this one. I think I'll ask already. Anyway, um, we'll start fresh. So, um, question here. Oh, question here. I have my left breast implant encapsulated and I want to remove the capsule and change my implants. I want to know how long should I wait before I can hold my two years old daughter? She always asked to be in my arms and I'm scared to do it too quick and create the same problem. Um, so, what you're saying is how long? So, this sounds like you've had, uh, I've got to make sure. Same, same sort of thing, really. Want to remove the capsule and change my implants. How long should I wait before I can hold my two-year-old daughter? Um, so you, uh, it's always difficult with children because you say no heavy lifting for six weeks, but you know, when you've got a child, you probably will want to lift, you know, lift them and hold them. Um, you know, it depends on you about holding. I mean, you can hold your two-year-old daughter now you know, or, or well, when, as soon as you have the surgery, really. Um, the main problem is going to be picking up your daughter from the ground sort of thing, because you don't want to want to be lifting things. And I normally say about six weeks for lifting things. Uh, if it's your daughter, it's quite hard to say to your daughter, I'm not allowed to pick you up for six weeks. So what you normally end up doing is you normally sitting, sort of just getting on your lap, two years old, hopefully she's sort of walking around things, but she's really, you know, re relatively large um, or heavy, you know. So just um, just go easy on it. And if it hurts, if it swells, back off. But if it's okay, carry on. You know, when it's your child, you've got to hold them. So, um, yeah, you could sort of listen to your body, see how it feels. And if it feels okay, then it should should be all right. Encapsulectomy and change of implants is quite a big operation. You'll probably be wearing your supportive bra for a month or so. So I think it's good to wear the supportive bra. But just do things gently and within... Um, practicalities but you know I think it's important to um, not make your daughter feel that she's not uh, being able to you know you're not able to hold her um, so let's start that in, let's start in. 
Uh, man alive, man alive. Mighty have fallen. 722 are on the last question, guys. Ah, yes. Debbie's straight in with a question. Debbie, I'm liking your style there. Thank you. Right, let's go. Oh, my God. What's the worst? Oh, Lord. Of, oh, actually, Debbie, I've got... There was something I was going to talk about. Debbie, you reminded me. Good. That's good. Oh, I've got a new lease of life. So when can I get pregnant? I don't know if this is the same person as the last question. I need to know how long do I need to wait to get pregnant after removing my encapsulated implants and change it for new ones without having the same problem? The answer to the question is I don't think uh, pregnancy is a risk factor for capsule formation for, for capsular contracture. So if you're worried about getting another capsule contracture, I don't think you have to, you know, you can just change your implants whenever after getting pregnant. The, perhaps there's a, there's a couple of other reasons why I think that you should when you have your surgery. Um, first of all, in terms in terms of how long to wait to get pregnant. Okay, after removing my cat. Yeah, okay. Well, the main thing I would say to you, I was going to say, if you're going to get pregnant, have a child. You're going to have a small child around, so you, you want to think about that after surgery you know if you're going to have surgery and have a small child that can be quite stressful but it, you're saying you're having the surgery then you're going to get pregnant so that's not an issue but the main thing in that case is the fact that when you get pregnant the size and the shape of your breast will change so if you're thinking of having a capsulectomy and change of implants now and then getting pregnant next year your chain your your breasts might change they might not but they might change unpredictable what happens when you have children they get bigger they get smaller they droop they sometimes stay big they sometimes go small stay small so it's unpredictable what happens so i would say to you actually get pregnant and you know finish with your family first because it might be that you'll need a bigger implant or a smaller implant or a different shape implant you might need a higher profile if you lose volume in your upper pole you might need a teardrop implant you just might need a different implant after you've been pregnant than you would have had so if you're thinking of changing your breast shape which is getting pregnant will change your breast shape just getting pregnant and changing the two things will change your breast shape don't have surgery until you are have finished doing those things because when you have surgery you want it to be stable really you want to um you don't want to have significant fluctuations in the size and the shape of your breasts after surgery so if there's going to be something that's going to happen that's going to change the shape of your breasts and the size of your breast then do that first and then because we can always make an adjustment onto what sort of size or shape you'd have. And I normally advise waiting out a year after having a child. So you might think, oh, goodness me, that's going to be like at least two years before I have surgery. But it's probably better for the long run because you don't want to keep on having surgeries, particularly if you had a capsulectomy. If you've got a capsulectomy, you don't have surgeries too often because every time you do surgery, you create more scar tissue. And that's what a capsule is, a capsule is scar tissue. So anyone who's got a capsule, I always say leave it as long as you can before having surgery because the the um, longer you leave it, the better. Um, so yes, Debbie, you're a legend because that, that's reminding me what I was going to talk about. How many TT do you perform a year? Do you use a specific technique? What's the worst complication you've encountered? Oh, Debbie, do I have to say? Oh, you're making me remember these things? Oh dear. Tough job being a surgeon. You carry these things around. You don't forget these things, you know. Okay. Um, how many tummy tumps do you perform a year? Um, 
this is leading on to my other thing that I was going to talk about. But anyway, I perform maybe 20 a year, um, uh, uh, something like that. Because um, I was going to, I'm going to talk a minute in a minute about this, but um, oh, should I talk about it now? No, I'll talk about it in a minute. So I talk about so let's say about twenty a year. Do you use a specific technique? Yes, I do. I use a specific technique. Um, obviously, there are different types of tummy tuck. Um, I perform all types: full tummy tuck, mini tummy tuck, fleurly, reverse abdominal plasty, circumferential. So um, there's different types. So different techniques I don't know if you're there are sort of different ways that you can close the, the tummy different sorts of stitches um, I use quilting sutures and I use drains we're all trying to move away from drains now there was a fashion for glue a lot of people use glue and no drain I've never embraced that personally um, I prefer the quilting sutures which is actually stitching it down um, and I still use drains, but I don't get much in the drains. So I'm now thinking, oh, should we um, not use drains? And I'm, we're probably close to that. I would say, Debbie, I'm doing less and less surgery now because I'm building a business and, and what have you. So I am doing less and less. But um, but I'm putting together a team at the clinic, and we're gonna have a way that we do stuff, and we'll work out what the best way to do things is. Currently, where we are, we're at the quilting sutures, still use drains, but as I say, just trying to move away from that. Um, but it's just the seroma that I worry about. Um, so I don't know if that's what you mean by specific technique. There's lots of different things you can do within a tummy tuck. So the way you fix the belly button in place, uh, believe it or not, there are papers written on that. I've written a paper on that, and I use the technique that I've written about. I use it so it's so the belly button sits in a hollow, um, and with a superior hood, um, there are some people use quilt. Uh, sorry, some people use barbed sutures. Some people use drains. I don't. Some people use, people use dissolvable staples. Um, as I say, I don't. I don't. Well, I, not as I say, I don't use barbed sutures. Dissolvable sutures, and I can talk about the pros and cons um, if you if you want to know why I. You know, the, the problem is whenever lots of people do different things, there's no one good way of doing. And I'm not saying the surgeons who do it are wrong and they wouldn't say I'm wrong. It's just different ways of, well, I hope they wouldn't. There's just different ways of doing things. So, um, yeah, so I, you know, developed and got a technique which is works. And that's that's what I do. And I, um, you know, that's what we talk about at the clinic. And the worst complication you've encountered, Debbie, I've got to tell you, um, any surgeon that tells you they haven't got any complications is either lying or doesn't operate so I have had complications, Debbie. Um, in recent years, I've had problems like I had a hematoma. Uh, maybe it was last year or the year before. You don't get it that often. Seroma a couple of years ago. Um, these are relatively um, relatively easy to fix problems. Um, the worst, but you can get big problems. You can get big problems when you're doing plastic surgery, when you're doing tightening procedures, uh, things like mastopexies, breast reductions, tummy tucks. And the worst problem I had, which I still vividly remember, is a problem when I was working at the city hospital in um, in Birmingham in the NHS, and I did a tummy tuck. This is going back quite some time when tummy tucks were still allowed to be done on the NHS. Um, and the patient, the wound, 
dehiss. The wound broke broke down, sort of opened up, um, and it was a real struggle. We needed dressing, which is a chemo-assisted dressing, for a long time. Um, I've got to say the patient was a smoker. Now, we do smokers, and I try and have a... Um, is conciliatory the right word? We try and get together, and I say to people, if you're smoking and you can't stop smoking, don't have a tummy tuck because it's just not worth it. The only big complications I've ever seen have been in smokers. That doesn't mean all smokers get complications, but it does mean that if you smoke, you've got a higher risk of getting complications because every time you smoke, you reduce the blood supply to the skin. And when you're closing things under tension, whether that be a breast reduction, tummy tuck, facelift, uh, mastopexy, you're closing wounds under tension, that skin is tight. And if it doesn't heal up, it, it opens up and it's a real problem. So um, I did that happen to me, as I say, it was in the in the NHS in the city hospital and I can vividly remember coming in in the morning and seeing this patient sitting outside with a cigarette with her vac machine and the, this dressing on her tummy and she was sitting in the smoking shelter outside having a cigarette. You know, she said she didn't smoke or she said she'd given up smoking. She obviously hadn't. We talked about it and we talked about whether we test people. They're talking and bringing in testing. I mean, it doesn't sit very easily that when you're having a conversation with a patient, you don't want to sort of start testing them for to see whether they're smoking or not. And there's all sorts of false positives. If someone in the family smokes, it might come up positive. And it's a bit awkward if it comes up positive. You say you stop smoking. We do a test and we say, look, that tester says you are still smoking. It gets awkward. So we don't test people. But I think that, you know, I understand the argument for people wanting to test because it is a nightmare when, when you do operate on smokers. So this way, lady, the wound opened up um and she had a back dressing for a long time she had to have a skin graft and then later on i managed to excise the skin graft and it actually looks fine now but it took a year or more to get over it all and it was really painful for me and painful for her and uh she was in and out of hospital and it was a bad complication you can get bad complications with tummy tucks uh, and all of these breast body contouring operations you can get back complications they are out there i don't need to tell you that you just search on the internet they're all there now they're not common they're not common you know this is going back you know 10 years or so so you know it's it's not a common thing but it's out there and certainly as a surgeon when you get a problem like that you don't forget it um and it stays with you and it's you know really tough times so um yeah there is there there is uh there is risk with, with surgery. So, uh, Buonasera, Anna. Do you have to have drains? G it's Gemma, sorry for the questions. Don't say sorry. Can't you see? I've got no more questions. I've got one quick one thing I want to talk about, actually. But, um, Gemma, do you have to have drains? If so, how long? For tummy tuck, um, yes, we still use drains. Um, so, the drains, the first thing to say is they don't, you don't go home with the drains. Because one thing that people talk about is that if you don't use drains, you reduce the hospital stay, you, you make the hospital stay less. But um, usually it's a two-night stay, sometimes one night, rarely one night, sometimes three. Um, I would say average is two-night stay. But to be honest with you, a lot of people want to have a sort of two-night stay just to get back on their feet and walking around. So even if you didn't use drains, it often doesn't want to use the hospital stay. The main problem with drains is they're uncomfortable being removed. I think anyone will tell you that. So patients don't like them. <clears throat> and I totally understand that. But um, but the good to sort of just close the space so yeah so they're normally in uh they're normally in 
until you go home. So you'll have the surgery on a certain day. Um, have a look day one, usually day one, the first day after surgery, there's usually not a great deal in the drains, well, it may or may not be a great deal in the drains, um, <clears throat> but then what we do is we try and get you up and walking. So we try and get you up and walking straight away. So that day, sometimes it drains a little bit more because you're up and walking. So that's why it's unusual to take them out on the first day post-op. And then the second day post-op, they will often come out on the second day post-op and then you can go home. Um, sometimes it's the third day. If there's too much in the drains or if you're not feeling up to it, it might be three days in hospital. Um, but um, it's, it's usually it's usually sort of two two nights in hospital is, 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 um, is average. So, so two nights in hospital is sort of three days, isn't it? Three nights is four days. Anyway, two nights in hospital is um, usual for a tummy tuck, but sometimes three. Um, hi, Rachel. Nice to see you there. So I've got a question which I'm going to type. Um, what about... Kuram? I've been asked... Um, Kuram is... Did that show? Did that work? No. Oh. oh, here we go, Debbie. Debbie, are you which team? I just, I just tried to do a question there, but it didn't work, did it? What about Kurum? Anyway, I'm going to keep your question up, Debbie. So um, we've been asked a bit about Kurum. So we've got two surgeons. We've got um, Kurum and we've got Azam. Kurum Khan and Azam Faroa. Uh, Azam is a skin specialist who works at the QE because they're both consultants, fully trained UK consultant plastic surgeons. They both work in the NHS. Um, Azam is at the QE and specializes in skin. And really at the clinic, he really, um, he, he can do anything really, but he wants to do skin. So um, he'll be doing the skin um, surgery, which is benign and um, um, so, you know, skin cancers or moles, cysts, skin tags, whatever. And then we've got Karam Khan. Karam Khan is a plastic surgeon at the QE. <laughs> um, sorry, not the QE, at the children's, children's. And he specializes in cleft, cleft lip and palate. And he um, is, he's done a cosmetic fellowship. So he's interested in cosmetic surgery. So he um, wants to do cosmetic surgery as well as his NHS practice, which is what he is doing. And um, he, we've had questions, I've had someone, it might, I don't know if it was you, anyway, someone saying um, how many surgeries has he done, just like Debbie asked me, how many tummy tucks have I done? Or how many tummy tucks do I do a year? Um, and things like this. And um, we were talking to this, to, to come about this the other day. And I think it's a good question to ask. I think it's fine, you know, how many tummy tucks have 10, 20, whatever, you know, a year? because you want someone who's done a certain number you don't want someone who's done none or one you know or five you know um so it is a good question to ask but what you'll find is certainly for me anyway personally uh probably for Kuram as well i'm not a high volume operator uh i a few years ago was approached by the clinics um you know commercial clinics and they say come and we'll do not you'll do nine breast augmentations a day um you know it'd be really great you know they don't chart they don't pay the surgeon as much as you would get paid if if you were having seeing the patient yourself that's how they work because they 
um, are a business and they pay the surgeons, you know, a, a share. Um, but you got volume, and so there are people who will say, "I've done a thousand of this operation, or five hundred of thousands of all this," and that's fine. Um, I don't personally. I mean, you would say you would say that. I don't think high volume is necessary. It's never really been what I was about it's never really what i want to do and i don't necessarily think you have to have someone with really huge high volumes uh for me doing nine breast augmentations on a list would not be a good list for me i have the nuances that i try and do in each case um you might have to adjust the fold you might have to do something to the pocket to try and get everything placed just right and so i would struggle to remember what i said i'd do to these people I was doing nine in a day. I think that's just too much for me. Two, three, four breast augmentations a day would be good. You know, I wouldn't, wouldn't, really personally wouldn't want to do more than four um, in a day. Um, so that's just, that's me. I don't, you know, I'm, that's how I, I, so you've got to make your own judgment on what you think surgeon you know and if you think numbers are good then fine go with someone who's got bigger numbers and there are probably a lot of people out there who've got bigger numbers than me Kuro, and and well maybe not asam i think asam has done a lot but um then because i was talking to current about this the other day and current was saying oh you know you've got to look at revision rate and you've got to look at um com complication rate more than numbers because if someone's done loads of them but isn't doing them very well making them they're all look terrible then you'd rather not have that person you want to have someone who's just you know taking his time over them and doing them really well um but even then revision rate i mean there's basically two things there's revisions and complications so a complication is usually something that happens within 30 days an infection a seroma hematoma and they are rare in plastic surgery so if someone has got a high complication rate then you sh should be worried you know but i think complication is so low i mean if you look at the clinic we have um hematoma i'd say we have about one a year for everything we do that's for tummy tucks breast reductions everything we do um seroma usually that's going to be a tummy tuck last seroma was three years ago um infections we do get superficial infections that might need antibiotics and you probably get those once or twice a year but a bad infection certainly an infection that's by a breast implant mood which is the really thing you know the real thing that you worry about for a straightforward breast augmentation never had one so it's sort of the the, the figures are low you know they're not percent they're like less than one percent so to judge different surgeons based on their figures because if a surgeon says oh, i've got a one percent infection rate that actually might be one one in a hundred that's quite a lot you know um but you might think that sounds really low um so so that's complication revision probably i mean i did a case today i did a, a, a some liposuction to someone who'd had some uh, who'd had a tummy tuck in the in the past and she had a bit of fullness on one side i've got a, quite a low threshold to do revisions because the whole thing is like i want everyone to be totally totally delighted with their result so my revision rate is probably quite high uh, it's about seven percent my revision rate and revisions is something that you do after 30 days so it seems like a dog ear um bulge at the end of the scar like this patient who's had a tummy tuck and got you know a bit of fullness and you need to do a bit of liposuction um breast implants and they're not sitting quite right and you need to adjust the uh, adjust the pocket um so i think i think you know seven percent is okay it's uh it's it's a it's it's in the normal range because we have to get 
as part of a BARPS. One of the benefits of being a BARPS member is we have to submit our figures every year to BARPS to make sure that we're in, you know, the um, we haven't got any outsiders. But you, I don't necessarily think looking at the revision rate is in itself a good way of telling a good surgeon because I could probably have a lower revision rate. Certainly when I worked at the, for Surgica, I worked for one of those companies years ago, I wasn't able to see my patients post-op. I never saw them post-op. I saw them for the, they didn't want me to see them post-op because they just wanted to be seeing new patients all the time. And so if this patient came with a bit of a bulge after a tummy tuck, I don't think she'd have got back to see me to have a revision. You know, it just wouldn't have happened. So you could say I could have had a lower revision rate by not doing stuff like that. But I'm quite happy doing stuff like that because I want to turn a happy patient into an absolutely ecstatic patient. Uh, and if I can do that by doing a little revision, I'm very happy to do that revision. Um, so for that reason, the sort of ethos is to have a low threshold to do revisions, but that might make our revision rate look high. So how, oh, we've got questions. How do you tell a good surgeon? As I say, maybe complication rate, but that's really low for everybody. So we, you, it's not like cardiac surgery. We have a league table of mortality and they say, well, Bristol, they've got a high rate. So this is a problem. You know, we've got such a low rate of subjective outcome measures like infections, return to theatres, things like that. They're so low, it's very hard to differentiate between anyone. And I think that's one of the reasons why the cosmetic clinics exist and they do very well because, you know, they've got a low rate complication rate just like any of us. Um, and so, you know, it's not, um, despite what you might see in the news and the media, um, it's not got a high complication rate. The media love talking about the complications of this sort of surgery, but it has got a low complication rate. Um, so so how do you tell whether <laughs> so a lot of people say that Kuram and then you know is it for me um first of all the training the the, the qualifications um the frcs plast fully trained plastic surgeon consultant post in the nhs that is the pinnacle of your training so if someone's got a full-time permanent consultant post in the nhs they have reached a certain level they've had an interview they've it's quite competitive uh, and they're the top of their um, profession. So this is sort of the criteria we have for people working in the clinic. Barbs and Bapras are professional associations. So we have a code of conduct. We have someone you've, you've, you know, we'll give you a discount if you have surgery this week or this month. You could quite rightly go to Barbs and say, you know, that's I, I felt pressured into having surgery, which I didn't think was very good. And Barbs would then discipline me or throw me out of Barbs or you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I'd get told off. So, um, but if you're not a BARS member, you, you know, you can do what you can advertise, um, whatever you want sort of thing. So um, I think that is something that gives a peace of mind to, to, to patients. Um, and just meet the person and see what you think and see if you've got a rapport with them. I think that is a big thing. And there's lots of plastic surgeons around, you'll get a rapport with one and not the other maybe. And um and definitely ask the questions about the numbers. I guess the other thing is to see how they answer the questions. I think that's the other thing. <coughs> I think if you ask someone about their training and their experience and they are comfortable with their training and experience, they will be happy to answer the question. I think if they feel or they seem a bit um, defensive or vague or um, guarded, I think you think, oh, O'Reilly, you know. So, um, yeah, that's my advice for that. So, yeah, I do want to talk about that, actually. So that's good. Thank you for that. So, um, yeah. So thanks, Debbie, for leading that in. But what's going on in the chat going on here? 
Gemma, what are you on about? Can you pay extra for glue or is it just, oh my Lord, pay, I mean, what kind of operational pay extra for glue? Can you pay extra for glue? Oh my God. Gemma, if glue was good, we do glue. It's, we're not doing it because it costs money. God, dear, oh dear. Where, where would you have the glue? Would you have the glue in the skin or underneath? Anyway, so no, Gemma, you can't pay extra for glue. Um, if you want glue, we'll do glue. Where do you want the glue? Do you want the glue? So if you have the glue to stick the two sides down, this um, this is a tummy tuck still, isn't it? Then, um, then you have um, a different technique of doing surgery. And I that's one of the things that puts me off using the glue because you have to do it a certain way. You can't put stitches in one by one. You have to put them all in and then put the glue and then stick it down and then tighten it up sort of thing. So that's a slightly different technique. So uh, I have used glue before, but and it was fine, to be honest with you. It was absolutely fine. The patient was fine. And <clears throat> that was when I did one as a day case as a local anesthetic. So she was going home the same day. That's why I used the glue. Um, not very common there. Um, so it's it's usually just stitches. To be honest with you, it's when you use glue, you use stitches as well. So it's always stitches. So sometimes people use glue as well. But um, so the other place people use glue is in the skin. But plastic surgeons, we tend not to use glue in the skin. The only way to use glue in the skin is to seal the skin if you weren't going to put a dressing on, which is a potential, but we just tend to put a dressing on. So, yeah, you can't pay extra to have glue, Gemma, but if you if there's a reason you think is glue is right for you, if you're allergic to the dressings or if there's a problem or something like that, we'll just use glue. We won't charge you extra, we'll just use it. It doesn't work like you don't have to pay for what, you know, what we use. You pay for like a tummy tuck and we'll use whatever we need to use to do a tummy tuck. And that's just, you know, the hospital would provide the glue and that's fine. They just do it. It wouldn't be an extra charge. But as I say, we tend not to use glue. Um, oh, here we go. I know someone who went abroad and instead of having stitches, she paid £390 extra for glue. That's what I asked. Well, there you go, Gemma. That's interesting. Well, then that's why you asked. Well, I've not, I've never heard of that being a thing. That's you know, if that if that was a the saying about a minute ago about barbs and flipping heck, if that was a barbs person who did that, that would be uh, very poor practice to charge more for something that's part of the procedure. As as I see it, I don't I don't see the um, reason to charge someone extra. I think you've got to do the surgery the best way you possibly can. I mean, there are different types of implants. Some implants are more expensive than others, so I can understand that because the implant costs more money. But, hmm, I mean, maybe they can justify it. I don't know. That's an ethical dilemma, that one. But, yeah, that's um, thanks for asking, Gemma, but it's not something that I have heard of and it's certainly not something that we would do. But if you wanted glue, instead of having to, I think they'd have done stitches as well, Gemma. If it's a tummy tuck, you can't do a tummy tuck without doing stitches. So they would have put glue as well. So maybe that's glue to, to um, instead of a drain, maybe. I'm not sure. Um, but that's a really interesting, Gemma. Um, thanks for that. Um, Ella? Oh, Ella. Ella with one L. Hmm. Ella. Do you do fat transfer to breasts? If so, do the breasts get changed as well as in the skin? Do you do fat transfer to breasts? If so, do changed as well as in the skin? Um, yes, we do fat transfer to the breast. Um, 
fat transfer of the breast is always subtle. So it's something we really have to talk to you about because I think people come thinking it's the great, you know, best thing ever and it's fantastic and you take some fat out of your buttocks or your thigh or your tummy and inject it into your breasts. Who wouldn't do that? That would be fantastic. We must be doing it all the time. We hardly ever do it, to be honest with you, Ella. And that is because it's always really subtle, the results of fat grafting to the breast, particularly when you've got to do both breasts. When you've got to do one breast, so if you had a breast asymmetry or if you had a dent or a ripple of an implant or something like that, then it's really good. It gives an extra bit of subtle layer of cover. But actually, I don't know, if you're talking about like cosmetic breast augmentation, there are people who do it and report good results, but in our hands, it's quite subtle. It's it's not a huge volume. It's not a cup size. It's less than a cup size it would be, and it's subtle. Uh, but it's permanent, and it's a, you know it's a great option if you are very slim and you don't want implants, particularly if you had a problem with implants or there's um, a reason you don't you particularly don't want to have implants. But it is subtle and it is quite expensive. It's almost as expensive as implants. And because it's so subtle, you often have to repeat it. So it can work out to be a much more expensive way of doing it. But once it's there and then it's you, it's your fat, it gets bigger and smaller as you change weight. So it is a good thing, but it is limitations. And it's really something we need to talk about in the clinic uh, in person to see whether it's right to you and to make sure your expectations are matched with what we can achieve so you're not unhappy because that's the main thing we don't want to say yeah yeah have some fat oh, you're brilliant fantastic take it out of your thighs and put it in your breast and everyone's happy and then you're like mm, it's not much of a difference and i paid you know thousands of pounds for this so we, we don't want that um what question uh in your experience are celiacs at a high risk of healing time long or sorry or healing time longer no not in my experience i don't know if there's evidence that they are i think what you um need to do is make sure you have a um, balanced diet so you know fresh fruit and veg and things like that and try and make sure that you have a healthy diet um, because you need your you know uh, vitamins minerals to heal uh, adequately uh, but i'm not aware of celiacs having more of a problem with wound healing uh, as long as things are under in control and you're in a an anabolic state which means that you're not in a catabolic state so anabolic state means you're sort of not putting on weight but you're healthy if you're losing weight and you're um, having difficulty absorbing the nutrients you know having difficulty absorbing foods and you're losing weight then i'll be thinking you don't really want to have surgery because that will delay your healing for what if you're doing if you're in that situation for whatever reason and if you are in a situation where you're have you know um something happening where you're you're maybe unwell and you're um you're not putting on on muscle mass then it's something we probably want to talk to the doctor who's looking after your celiac disease to see is always oh, she having a flare-up at the moment is it something do we need to wait some time to uh, get her into a better position before she has surgery um and we liaise with your doctor about that but if you're quite stable with it and had it for a while and your diet's modified accordingly and your weight's stable and you're comfortable with your weight, then I think uh, it's fine. And in, in my experience, there's no increased risk of healing. I don't know what the literature says. <coughs> I've got a huge series of operating on people with celiac disease, but it's not something that I'd be particularly worried about as long as you're healthy, you're fit, you're, and your weight is relatively stable. Here we go. I'm referring to using, this is Ella again, fat transfer instead of implants. That's why, what is the most you can transfer per breast? 
I'll give you an idea of Figazella, but it does depend on the size of the breast, uh, which is what we call the recipient site, and it depends on the donor site, depends on how much fat you've got. And ideally, you want someone with a lot of donor site with big breasts and a lot of recipient, sorry, a lot of recipient site, which is big breasts and a lot of donor sites, so a lot of sort of fat around their body. <clears throat> but as a general rule, people having breast augmentation are not that. You're unlikely to get someone with a big breasts who wants fat grafting but to, to, to have breast augmentation because, you know, they wouldn't need it if they had big breasts. So people wanting breast augmentation are usually quite slim with small breasts. And the problem is what you're trying to do with the fat grafting, with the fat transfer, is you're trying to put it in the skin, in the space between the skin and the breast, and also the space underneath between the breast and the muscle. So you're sort of putting it around the breast, you're trying not to get it into the breast tissue itself, um, and you're limited to the space you can put the fat in. And as I say, usually patients have got a small breast, that's why they need the surgery. And so you're limited places where you can put the fat and each little piece of fat you put in you put it in, in tiny tiny little aliquots because each little injection has to be surrounded by healthy vascularized fat if it's not surrounded by healthy vascularized fat you try and inject a big big glob of fat in the bit around the outside will be healthy be surrounded by healthy vascularized fat so that'll get a blood supply but the bit in the middle won't get a blood supply and it'll die and you'll form a little cyst or you'll form fat necrosis a little hard lump so you have to inject it in tiny little aliquots and have normal, natural, healthy fat surrounding each little aliquot that you inject. That's why it takes so long, and that's why it's limited to how much you can put in. Also, the donor sites are important. As I say, often people having fat transfer are very slim, and they've got a limited amount of fat that you take the fat from, <clears throat> limited areas of fat you can take the fat from. So the donor sites are limited. So you're often limited to how much fat you can harvest and how the space that you can put it in. Once you put it in once, and you have a slightly bigger breast, then you can put more in second time. So as well as like, you know, it does often have to be repeated. So the sort of volume, the most you can transfer per breast. I mean, the real experience that I've got in breast uh, fat grafting is in breast reconstruction. So people have had a cancer and they've reconstructed a breast. And they often do have good because they've often got some good sort of subcutaneous covering and you're always just going on one breast. So you can put, or I have put, you know, uh, 250 to 70 cc's into a breast uh, in one go, which is, you know, a big 70 cc implant. Um, but that's not common, you know. And if, you, if you're splitting between two, then you're doing a bilateral. Um, the common sort of volume is less than 100 mils per breast. 40, 50, 60, 80 mils per breast, maybe 100. If you're lucky, something like 120, that would be a lot per breast. Now you've got to remember a cup size, people say broadly speaking it's about 150 cc's, so that's less than a cup size, maybe even half a cup size. And you're paying the same as if you had breast augmentations or almost the same as you're having breast augmentation where you can easily get a 270 cc implant off the shelf and predictably say I'm going to make your breast 270 cc's bigger um, or 300 cc's or 400 cc's, you know, you can do that with an implant. But uh, with fat grafting, you are limited with the volume. So you have to be aware that it is often subtle and it's all about patient expectation. Um, here we go, Debbie. Do you need a very experienced administrator stroke receptionist, 30 years NHS experience for your new business? Um, wow, Debbie, look at this. Um, you are a woman of many talents. You've got questions and you, Debbie, um, you could, why don't you, private message us Debbie or we can private message you 
um, and you can talk to Nicola about that sort of thing. <laughs> so um, Nicola's got good at that sort of thing, but that's fantastic. And if anyone else would um, like to offer their um, um, services, <laughs> very interesting in, in working at the clinic, we're always looking to expand and we're always looking for new people. So uh, thank you for that, Debbie. But um, yeah, give a message to Nicola and maybe give a give and she can get back to you. Just do it. I say to Nicola, just do it a private message on the Facebook and she'll look at it. Or you can do Nicola at stylinoplasticsurgery.co.uk. Uh, but thanks, Debbie. That's kind. Um, and uh, very good to have your questions. So that God, that was good. That worked out quite well, actually. Um, Debbie, you got me out of a hole with your questions because you reminded me that uh, what I want to talk about. So. I am um, going to go and discipline my child who was uh, disrespectful at the beginning of the broadcast, so I apologise for that, and uh, won't happen again, probably will, um, and I'm going to go and see what's happening out the other side of the door. So thanks everyone for viewing, and seven o'clock next week, uh, please ask questions between now and then, put them on Facebook direct message me if you don't want to be identified if i do i won't say your name obviously if it come if you comment if your name comes up but if you don't want to be identified just direct message and i'll just say like i have with the others you know then it'll just go up like anyway like the other questions without your name um and i will see you here seven o'clock next tuesday thanks for watching Try to end it. Oh, thank you so much. Have a question not covered in today's show? Then send it over to info at styanoplasticsurgery.co.uk using the hashtag AskJJ. We'd love to hear from you.